Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, my dear Octavia, how are you? Hi, Carrie. I am good. I'm fine. I'm trucking along. Not much to report. (laughs) (laughs) I'm annoyed about the rain, but I'm not going to bitch about it for too long. (laughs) How about you? How are you doing? We're recording this when I still have COVID. So that's what's happening in my life. I've watched a lot of movies from the 90s, 80s and 90s. That's been fun. I watched Working Girl last night. Amazing movie. That movie. Yeah. Amazing. Have you watched Con Air yet? No, that is a great idea. (laughs) I watched Con Air the other night when I was pissed off about the rain and it made me feel better. Okay, good. Con Air is next. Nicolas Cage's guns in that movie are impossible to comprehend. Yeah, because I don't think of him as a like a muscly guy. Me neither. Dude must have been on steroids or something. It's impossible. It's so camp, that film also. It's just, he's like a camp hunk Jesus soldier. It's so crazy. Exactly what I want right now. And then maybe <laughs> I'll follow it with Face Off. Definitely. When definitely. he takes camp to a new level. A completely different, yeah, new plane of existence. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, today on the show, we're so excited to be talking to the writer Shalu Guo, whose latest book, Radical, A Life of My Own, is both a personal lexicon and a memoir, which thinks deeply about many things, including what it would mean to truly forge a life of one's own. So we're taking our theme from that subtitle. We'll be thinking about what it means to live a life of one's own, both as an artist and as a character in literature, and which works of literature most embody this idea and even inspire us. As we announced on our last mini-sode, we're wrapping up Literary Friction at the end of this year. This is our last author interview, and we think Shalu is a really fitting last guest, partly because of how she thinks about things like language, translation, freedom, and radicality through literature. Is radicality a word? It is now, babe. Okay. (laughs) And of course, those are themes that we've come back to again and again over the years. Don't worry, though. This isn't our last show. We'll be bringing you a year-in-review episode in a couple of weeks' time, and we will be reviewing both this year, but also the last 10 years of this wonderful podcast project that we have been doing together. We will, absolutely. And we are also, as we mentioned on the mini-sode, really hoping to do a couple of live events in the new year to say goodbye to some of you in person, if we can secure some funding to put them on. So we will keep you posted on that front. And if you are an organization or an extremely wealthy individual who wants to help with a little bit of sponsorship or even a venue for a final mini farewell tour, then we would really love to hear from you. In the meantime, we are, for a little bit longer, still on Patreon. So if you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes at least for one more month. We will be doing one final Patreon minisode to wrap everything up as well. Tune in there if you would like to. Don't miss it. (laughs) (laughs) But now back to the show. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Shalu Octavia? I Definitely do. Shalu Guo was born in China. She published six books before moving to Britain in 2002. Her books in English include A Concise Chinese-English Dictionary for Lovers, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize, and her recent memoir, Once Upon a Time in the East, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was shortlisted for the Costa Biography Award and the Folio Prize. Her most recent novel is A Lover's Discourse, shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize in 2020. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a visiting professor at the Free University in Berlin. You can find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Xiao Lu Guo, our discussion of the theme of A Life of One's Own, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So go get a life! (laughs) Ha!
<laughs> but also stay with us for the next hour on literary friction. I have not heard the phrase get a life since I was 12 years old. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Shalu, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with the reading. So this section is from early part of the book because each section starts from a title and then the definition of that phrase or that title etymology. This session is called Empire State Building. Empire State Building is a skyscraper on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, completed in the 1930s. I walked towards Empire State Building in Midtown close to it, but still on 32nd or 34th Street. I discovered that the edifice had disappeared. I raised my chin to the sky, spinning like a levitating top, but I couldn't locate the spire. The buildings I could see were equally immense with Art Deco facades. They encircled me in every direction. I knew I was only 80 or 100 meters away from the Empire State Building, but I had lost all sense of orientation. Thank you. I think that gives a wonderful sense of the entries. And I want to start with a pretty simple question, which is, what gave you the idea of writing your own personal lexicon for this book, Radical? Radical is continuation from my previous books, some in fiction form and some in nonfiction form. The very first novel I wrote in English after I wrote several books in Chinese, and that was nearly 20 years ago, a novel called A Conscience Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers. And it's a novel really based on the words, English words, but for a foreigner like me, a Chinese person too, to adopt, to learn, and to use them in my own particular way. And that's a fiction, a narrative book about the relationship between those strange foreign erotic or difficult words a foreign woman try to possess or use them in her own empowered or no-powered way. And that's also a book inspired after Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse, Fragments. So it's very much like fragments of words and thoughts and ideas between the lovers. And then something like 15 years later, I wrote A Lover's Discourse, a sort of continuation of that idea. But that's the two novels which is very much confined or it's almost like this narrative form become a limitation for certain things I want to explore. And then when I was in New York a few years ago, when I was alone, I discovered actually that would be a good time to write nonfiction, to have a kind of private lexicon addressed to many things a woman like me would concern or kind of discussing a foreigner's experience with the landscape, with the urban space, with the idea of a home, womanhood and family and nationality, you know, or roots. So that's how Radical was born, you know, when I was just wandering around in Manhattan and all those words, important words in Chinese and in English came to me. The book has a number of photographs and artworks by you scattered throughout some of the entries. Were they always a part of how you conceived of it, or did they come in later on? Actually, they came quite early, quite naturally. 
It's funny because I have this tendency to have a visual reference in my fiction or nonfiction book. I think the one before Lover's Discourse didn't have photos, but I have other novels with a lot of stills, especially one novel called Twenty Fragments of Ravno's Youth. And that's early novel I wrote, and it's a lot of photos. They all more like a documentary record of the streets of the building I was describing, you know, or something linked to that section. I tried to convey a certain idea to do with China, to do with roots. And somehow I felt much more dynamic to have images in, in those narratives. And I also just my background, it seemed to be automatic for me to have this visual in my books. And then I have a text in my films when I make films. That was going to be my next question, because of course, you're a documentary filmmaker. And there's also in this book, Radical, there is this documentarian's eye, I think, in the observations that you're making as you're walking through the city and, of course, the images. And I wonder how your filmmaking has influenced your writing and also how your writing has influenced your filmmaking. Yeah, that's a great question. I somehow could never really answer that properly. I guess it's quite complex and it's very, it's organic and sometimes it's spontaneous, you know. When I was very young, I grew up in a quite remote village in southeast China. And I, of course, grew up with Russian literature you know, at that time. So it was those kind of very ideological Russian revolution literature, Pasternak, or poetry from Russian. That was my just a literary reference until in my late teens, I discovered French literature, or Duras, or American poetry, or B-Generation. Then I was very fascinated by European-American literary reference. And that moment, I began to watch films, European films, Russian films. I guess my generation in China was one of the first generation really moving away from literary reference to the visual narrative reference. And at that time, in early 90s, I was in my early 20s, the first generation video camera were available in a school, in film school especially. So I decided to go to film school to learn something I didn't know at that time. I thought I'd know a little bit about literature and how to write, which is not true. So I went to film school <laughs> to study. And so I guess your question is quite interesting in a way. I think I feel more natural with writing. It's something like Macriduras would say, writing is her first thing, you know, feels very natural, like drinking coffee. But filmmaking is something else. is this love affair, very exciting, but also difficult because it has to, based on many material, practical, machinery, and economical kind of support. And it's never natural. You can't just get up having coffee and then make a film. But you can get up, have a coffee, write a page and then another page. So I was trained for 10 years in China film school. Then I came to Britain and two years in a film school in the UK for documentary study. But I think during those times, I wrote a lot because writing was easier. And it's when I left the UK National Film School, I really began to make films quite rapidly. Sometimes two films a year, sometimes two feature films a year seemed to be something I couldn't do in China because the limitation, the censorship. I love the way you discuss the word radical in this book, which of course is the title and it's many different meanings, especially in relation to the way that 
the Chinese written language uses radicals. And I wonder if you could explain that use of the word, but also why you wanted to bring that into conversation with other meanings of the word radical in English. The book began with introduction of what is radical. Actually, radical is radis, the roots. In Latin, you call it radis, the roots of words. Each word maybe have the roots from something else, from the Latin or from other language. And I explain radical in Chinese, translated as busho. It only means the parts, the little body parts of one Chinese character. And one Chinese character could be composed by five radicals, or three radicals, or two radicals. Maybe one radical look like sun, another radical look like moon, and then maybe another radical look like heart. And then you put things together, become a complete concept. We call it hanzi or kanji, you know, whatever you call it. So that's what we call it radical. We say shou. And that's really just the same as European language. For example, you know, melancholy would come from a Latin root of a word, you know, say delicious would be from a Latin word, a root of that word, delicious. And we can check out almost every word have these roots. So I began the book from that section, you know, what is radical. And of course, you know, I also say, you know, in English, radical meaning something avant-garde, forward-thinking, but that is different in Chinese words. We'll use other words to describe that. And that's called jijing. So I explain the closeness of the concept, but also the radical difference of these two languages. And then I was hoping from that, from the first two pages, I can launch into this kind of etymological journey, same time very strange and meandering and dreamlike, the hidden way of challenging certain idea of a private place or public space and memory, especially. I just use this kind of quite heavy method in a way to somehow convey those ideas I had for this book. It allows you to roam so freely. That's what I loved about it so much. And there's references to all kinds of different works of art and thinkers and everything. But you mentioned dreams there. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that you include in one of the entries that in Freud's introduction to psychoanalysis, he notes a similarity between the Chinese language and dream language. So this kind of nonverbal language of the unconscious and the way that Chinese radicals are structured. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that and why you wanted to include it. When I first read that, I think it's, it's Lacan. Jacques Lacan mentioned the Chinese language, especially the writing system, and the Chinese language doesn't have this grammar, you know, verbal conjugation. It doesn't have this difference between man, female, gender difference, no verbal conjugation, and very vague. And also the writing is so poetic, so visual. It's somehow it's like the dream language is visual-based and extremely opaque and vague. And I think Freud also discovered that. And then I read Freud that bit and I thought, God, it's amazing how they think perhaps the Chinese language, especially the writing system, could explain the human unconscious and also <laughs> the dream language. I just found that incredibly intellectually very little explored by both Western thinkers and the Chinese thinkers between our unconscious and this strange, rich Chinese language because it's very Asian language, very visual-based. And we've been talking about all of the ideas that this book is packed with, but I don't know that we've really mentioned that the structure is also a chronological memoir in a way, in that in all of these entries, we're also 
moving through a period of your life with you. And I wonder if you could talk about that element of this book. How did you feel about writing a memoir? And how did you get that balance right of the kind of ideas and the texts and the things you were introducing and elements of your own life? Yeah, I think for me, it's very natural. I write essays, I write diaries. And for me, this extension of diary with certain intellectual structure. I don't think my kind of writer think, oh, this will be memoir or or some other format, because I think a lot of writers are prose writers or essay writers or diary writers. I'm really essentially a diary writer. You know, I make notes every day. And these are the notes. I think the word memoir is scary, carry this kind of very traditional 18th, 19th century connotation as if someone's dying and it has a grand history to tell to the later generations. And I think for a lot of women, we write our essays, we write our daily reflections and in other words living autobiography but again biography is of such a male scientific world as if the, the male can define what is biography what is dead memoir you know i i really don't care very much about those definitions i think i want to write essential things i want to keep a diary i want to write down the thinking the confusion the important things in my daily life and that's what i Right. I know a lot of people work in that way, especially a lot of women writers. So I'm very much not <laughs> into this kind of super narrative stuff, which is genre writing, science fiction, that immediately they put themselves in this kind of particular language rather than the everyday intimate language, which we are using, and all domestic language, which we about most of the time we're using. And I don't have problem with that. So, as you said, it's chronological. So it's really began with, I was in New York taking up this professorship, you know, for a year, and then just began my exploration of the city or the country. As American, you know, it's a third continent. I, or the third country, I imagine myself would live after China, after Britain. I think it's really difficult because I used to make one feature film every year. And write a book every year. Since I left China, I was 30 years old. Now, this was the, the kind of intensity I have carried through, you know, after China. And after I left Britain, I was in New York, wasn't writing anything. I wasn't making a film. I was just teaching once a week. And then was working on a, a documentary film idea about Walt Whitman. I think there's some kind of freedom. There's many hours in my hands every day, free, but not knowing where to, use this it's incredible when someone so just engaged in the past in the immense workaholic kind of life you know in britain and in china so i was in the u.s was a new person which is bizarre when you are in your 40s late 40s a third country a third continent to try to understand and i think the book just recorded my kind of thinking anxiety my confusion and it really, as I said, a woman's dictionary, how she sees marriage, how she sees childbearing, freedom, love, and sexuality, and also just, you know, roots. I think the idea of roots and uprootedness were very, I think, acute in my feeling of leaving my first country and then leaving my second country. And then the book somehow returned to Britain in the middle part. And there is this character, which is me, 
but literally me engaging again in the old known domestic duty and also continue to try to live authentically without living the formality, the usual norm of everyone's life, try to create a kind of unique personal space. So that's quite a really disquiet or quite a struggle carry on till the end of the book. I'm just hoping many women or many kind of intellectually stimulated people find this is very, you know, close to their experience, the personal freedom and this public space out there with all the memories. So it's, I think it's a very difficult book to describe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's so much in it that made so much deep sense to me. I also went to New York to try and figure out how to live authentically at one point in my life. And there's something about that city as well that feels so full of possibility and energy. And I really think we find the sense of place in this text very strongly. But also, to me anyway, this is a very feminist text. As you said, you're interested in how women can find lives of their own when there is so much that bogs them down, right? And that some of those inequalities are even enshrined in the language that we use. You write about language's deficiencies in this book, as well as all of the things that can open up. I mean, there's a line I loved where you write, we must acknowledge our deep need to communicate beyond the rigid vocabulary of feminism and politics and to reach for a language that is authentic yet remains uncategorized. Do you feel like you got closer to that in the writing of this book? Yes, I think you read the most important sentences in the book. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I think even now, before we having this conversation, I felt like I'm in that struggle, you know, in this kind of perpetual internal struggle of the same quest. And it's strange. I sometimes ask, is everyone like this? Is everyone living like this? Deal with everyday life like this? And I just feel it's quite a difficult way, if it's not painful, but it's slightly painful way to deal with everyday life. But I, I think I wonder if that's also to his complete uprootness from my Chinese bringing up. I wonder just... I grew up in a very agricultural landscape. Everyone around me was peasants and fishermen, fishermen and peasants, and really grew up with buffaloes and rice fields and boats and a very kind of rural landscape for years. And of course, his intellectual inspiration brought me to this place as an artist and then came to Britain. And then all of my family died in China. Now I no longer go back. And I wrote in second language. It is strange, you know, I guess if I left China when I was 10 or teenager, it would be easier. You know, I guess I left a bit late. <laughs> I was like in my 30s. So it's the life become, you know, like pre and after. And I think also as a writer, I have suffered a bit of this linguistic identity because I was writing furiously in China, published nearly 10 books when I was living in China. And so I was just as coherent as a Chinese author living in Beijing writing in my own language, wrote a lot of screenplay as well. So when I came to Britain, this sudden this switch, writing my broken English to begin with, that was incredible. That feels like some kind of sudden breakup linguistically. And also no one around me speaking Chinese or read Chinese. So I had to switch the whole thing. And I don't know. I think I do long for this kind of warmth and intimacy. But then I live in a writer's life, which is totally paradoxical. 
as a writer who wrote a lot, I have to refuse a lot of social kind of gathering or party because if you have a child, you have very limited hours a day to really to be alone to think and read and then eventually write. So I become like on one hand refuse all the social engagement. On the other hand, I die for that. Really want that. And this is self-imposed isolation, exile I have linguistically and socially. I think produce that kind of melancholy in the book. I feel that melancholy, but I also feel there's the subtitle of this book is a life of my own. And one of the ways that I really see you forging a life of your own in this book is through writing in a very positive way, where you say that you care about finding a space for the pursuit of freedom where I can reflect and write. And also you say near the end of the book that writing is a way of enduring daily suffering, which I suppose is not like triumphal, but that's a place you land here, that writing is this immensely powerful way to forge one's own life. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Is that How do you see the relationship between finding a life of your own and writing itself? I think you use that word or you quoted from the book, Enduring. How do we endure this life creatively? On one hand, maybe it's enduring, but on the other hand, it's creating imaginative daily life, you know, a space which is different from the practicality of the daily life. We, I guess it's just a, also very real for a writer if you wrote all your life, like me, apart from making films, which are wonderful. Making films is totally social engagement with a lot of people and team and a lot of kind of technical demand. But last few years, I couldn't make it because of funding all that personal situation. So just living as a writer is, is this bizarre self-isolation, especially you're very committed to writing every day. I'm not sure how to answer you, but I think there's one word in the book called Leben Konstler, which I quoted in the German word from Goethe. So it means, you know, one should be an artist of life. So I think that is really a great, simple, but complex word. Everyone should be a Leben Konstler, the living artist, the, the artistic living person, deal with the trivial or immense activities, making a cup of tea or grow a plant or try to grow an orange tree or try to attend one's garden or try to build your house or try to paint your walls and try to decorate your bedroom. This concept of being a Leben artist, a Leben Konstler, the life artist, is kind of lost in a very professionalized life, right? We're all having this social career which we have to and the living, make our social identity progress, you know, advance. And I think we lost this kind of really quite authentic living purpose as a living constellation, as an artist of life, artist of a living. So that's also like very connected to the idea of being a Taoist or being a Buddhist, to just contemplate what's around us, not making this material advancement in a social life. I wanted to ask you about longing and desire, which is a big part of the story. And also you mentioned Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse, which is obviously an influence here. But I was also thinking what you describe as a kind of melancholy, which comes from wanting to live artfully and wanting to write and to make work, but also this feeling of, I wonder if for you, a feeling of longing or a feeling of displacement is really generative artistically. 
there's an entry which is all about ending, filling up, finis and full. And you explain that the Chinese character for fullness, one, also means to be used up or to be finished, which I thought was such an interesting way to think about longing, that without longing, are we finished? Is longing actually being alive? I don't know. What do you think? Mm, it's a really good point. I think I was brought up by my father, who was a painter, and quite intellectual, poetic person. I think he just didn't like people who settled content with this very limited, complete family life and this kind of safe or mediocre kind of job. I think my family have this strange idea gray life is something incomplete, something you can exit and look for something better. So it's almost nomadic, this search or quest for life is elsewhere. It's very much like Milan Kundala said, you know, gray life is elsewhere. And I grew up like that who had this kind of distrust of people who totally settled and comfortable and just have this self-congratulated life. I always have this snobbish kind of despise on them. I thought, God, we only have a few years to live. Why don't we break through this limitation? But of course, this is also incredibly immature. It's almost like teenage kind of energy. But I somehow I live all my life like this, this kind of almost troubled, nomadic need to break through, to go beyond, to have a new home and then to leave. It's always like home is the place to leave, but never a place to return. So I think that your question of longing and desire has something to do with this need of discovery or the need of newness, need of breakthrough, the, the ordinariness, this appetite for life, this kind of great ravenous hunger for more, for life, for experience, for the unknown things. And I know, you know, this is almost like illness in me. But I think it's also the same with writing, with making films. I felt each time this intense need to do something different or more beyond my capacity, you know, almost, if I cannot do it in my daily life. So I know this strange way to answer your question about desire and uh, and longing. This can be exercised on other person, you know, on our lovers or in our relationship. But also this emotional need exercised through different format, I think, creative art or creative life or nomadic way of living or some other kind of way of not in the norm, right? I guess as you grow older, one look for ways to, to experience the newness, maybe not in a traditional way. Yes. And one of the ways that longing manifests in this book is your relationship with a man named E, who you meet in New York. And I found it very relatable to read about your relationship with him because it is so defined by longing. And I just wonder, was he always going to be a part of this book or was it something that took you by surprise and then had to be included in the writing? Oh, that's interesting. For me, it was natural. People come in and out. In this journey, you know, during the time when I was there, I think I was born with a book. I'm not sure, really, because it was quite a few years ago, and after that I wrote two more books. But <laughs> I think I began with the idea of this would be a etymology of, of womanhood, or etymology of separation, you know, a book of separation about the multiple separation I have gone through in my life with a culture, with a motherland, or mother tongue, and in my own family. 
And then just slowly I began to write more and more stuff. I do because I write every day. And they become really chronologically diary-like, but very natural. So I don't really write already composed plots or narrative. And normally I don't have much kind of story or narrative. But I do have the encounters all the time. So I write them down. And then later on during the editing, some encounters kept, some encounters I took out. Some are significant, some are not. So I just feel like one of those diary writers take what remain valuable. Yeah, I, I love that conception of how to put a book together. Xiaolu Guo, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction to talk to us today. Thank you so much. So today's theme is A Life of One's Own, which we have taken from the subtitle of Radical by Xiaolu Guo, who we just spoke to. So when Virginia Woolf first published her famous essay, A Room of One's Own, in 1929, it was a radical commentary on the lack of free expression afforded to women at the time. 94 years later, there's some math. (laughs) The metaphorical idea of that room is as powerful as ever, a space for the pursuit of freedom, as Shalu puts it, in Radical, which for her, as for Wolf, is a space where she can reflect and write. Today, we wanted to think about this question of what it means to live a life of one's own, which is really a question about freedom, how it resonates differently depending on who's asking it, and about some of the writers and literary characters who embody the radical impulse to define life for themselves, sometimes against all kinds of odds. So, I want to start, Octavia, by asking you, what does it mean to you, this idea of pursuing a life of your own or a life of one's own? I think it's an idea with a lot of layers to it, actually. So I'm going to I'm gonna split it up a bit. I think my first answer is that it's about having the freedom to choose how to live your life, right? What to do with your time, who to love, how to express your identity, how to earn a living, where to live, all of these sort of different factors. But of course, as Wolf wrote in her essay, before you even get to all of that, you need to have the mental and creative space to consider these things in the first place. And the truth is that far too few people are afforded that mental and creative space in the first place. So I think it can be really easy to underestimate the colossal gift of being born into a relative amount of structural privilege. And that is what it is. It gives you the space to consider how you want to live rather than just living in survival mode. And if you're born into that kind of structural privilege, also crucially, you're raised with the understanding that these are questions that you have a right to ask yourself from the get-go. So I think for people like you and me, cis white women who've grown up in economically wealthy countries, who've been through a particular education system that is all about supporting your self-directed choice of life and with access to good healthcare, all of those things mean that the question of how to live a life of one's own isn't really a, a hugely radical idea for us, right? In fact, I'd go to s- as far as to say that in the broadest terms, we've been encouraged to pursue a life of our own by our families and by our culture since we were extremely young. I also think that within those broad freedoms, there are always restrictions, whether those come in the form of certain unspoken family or cultural expectations, maybe social ones. For example, these are expectations to do with gender or nationality or class or conservatism, whatever. 
those restrictions do exist. So I think you have to hold this question in two hands, with privilege in one hand, and then also the potential for certain very real restrictions in the other. So I think for me, living a life of my own is about being aware of the forces that are at play when I make choices when I'm like thinking about how I want to live on a very personal level it's also about maintaining my sobriety because if I'm not sober I'm really not making choices <laughs> um you know active addiction is a life where you're really not in choice you're in an illness on a personal level that's really important I think when I'm most in line with the idea that I'm living a life of my own when I really feel that and en- energy is when I'm writing which is definitely something that informs all of my other life choices these days. As much as I can, I make choices that protect my ability to write and that support the development of that skill and that profession. And I think finally, I think crucial to this whole idea is also the space for difference, right? You have to have a deep understanding that what you might choose to pursue to build a life of your own might be radically different from what I choose to pursue myself. And that is like a wonderful thing that must always be remembered, that when you're speaking about a life of one's own, we're really speaking about the personal, right? I also think the last thing I want to say, and this is a really long answer, but it feels very important to talk about this when certain rights are being rolled back. Like we're seeing the rolling back of reproductive rights, which are of course human rights and crucial to being able to choose what kind of life you might want to live if you're born into a female body. So that's all in the mix as well. But what do you think? Here, here, Octavia. (laughs) Yes, I agree that living a life of one's own is a much more radical proposition when it's forged from a position in which someone is not granted the privilege to choose which life they want to live. And that there can be a lot of reasons for that related to gender, class, race, sexuality, simply where you're born. And in fact, kind of what you're alluding to, I think that maybe in our more individualistic society, especially in spaces of privilege, which we are both within and we're born within, we often choose what we conceive of as a life of our own at the expense of others, putting our individual wants and needs above those of our society and the people around us. And I don't know, I was thinking about this and it makes me think about Maggie Nelson's book on freedom, yeah, which we spoke to her about on the show. And I confess I didn't love everything about that book, which felt a bit too diffuse to me and sometimes just impenetrable. But I did love the way that she conceptualized a society in which freedom is accessible to all, including how it's important to conceive of our freedoms from as well as our freedoms to, which means actually taking into account what other people's freedoms mean. And she ends up with this focus on care. Anyway, I don't know. A life of one's own can be selfish sometimes if we're not absolutely thoughtful about it and damaging to others. So for me, pursuing a life of my own is about truly trying to find a path in my life that gives me satisfaction and happiness. And that comes through many things, love, friendship, creativity, engagement with the arts, sports, but also makes way for the freedom of others and even encourages others' freedom even if that sometimes comes at the expense of my own wants and desires and freedoms. So I'm not sure I ever get close to that ideal, (laughs) (laughs) but that's how I think about it personally. Okay, so we've talked about what we think of a life of our own. How about the role of literature or art in general in figuring out what a life of one's own might look like? Oh my God, it's so vital, right? inspiration, basically. I think it can be really hard to imagine a new way of being without seeing a model for it. And 
sometimes the only way to discover other ways of living is by reading books or watching films or engaging with the arts. Immediately, I'm thinking about a book I read this summer, and not just because of the title, called A Life of One's Own by Joanna Biggs, and the subtitle is Nine Women Writers Begin Again. And the premise is basically when Jo's marriage ends in her 30s, she finds herself getting divorced and she turns to the lives and work of eight other women writers for inspiration on how to start again. And it, it's the ways these women navigated ruptures in their lives provides a bit of a roadmap for her personally. It's like a beautiful meditation on the power of literature. Similarly, a book I'm reading now, which I've mentioned before in the show, The Baby on the Fire Escape by Julie Phillips, is about creativity and motherhood. And it, the reason she wrote it was Phillips had this desire to make sense of the eternal question of how to balance art and motherhood by looking at the lives of six women artists and writers who were mothers and who were also artists. And I'm reading it because I'm struggling with this question in my own life and I'm seeking wisdom and inspiration from those who came before me. So again, I, I need a roadmap because I'm struggling to imagine it for myself from within my own reality. Obviously, both of those examples are nonfiction but the imaginative space of fiction is, of course, so important here, right? Fictional characters can be free of, of so many constraints that real human beings maybe can't be. And they, again, can serve as a sort of inspiration for us and show a model or a path for our own emancipation. I think also that's a big thing in children's literature, right? Where children are forging their identity and their perspective every single day. Everything is new. And the characters that they encounter in literature can be really radically like galvanizing and important for them. And I also think it's a way of imagining radically different ways of living from those that are familiar to you, right? Which is why it's so important to engage with art of all forms that's made in cultures that are very different from your own, because it's a way of decentering your own way of living, which is really important because it's only at the center because it's what you know. It's not necessarily at the center because it's the best. <laughs> yeah. And as you say, a life of one's own is different yeah. for every single person. What about you? What do you think? I think Inspiration is exactly the right word, and that goes for authors themselves and observing how they made a life for themselves alongside making art, as well as the subjects or the stories in fiction. And I love fiction about characters who choose radically different ways of living or who make big changes in their lives in order to live a life of their own, not necessarily because I want to copy them or do exactly what they're doing, but because, as you say, it opens up the possibilities of what people are capable of and can do, even if it doesn't always go well. And I do think fiction shows us that it's really hard <laughs> to live a life of one's own. Right. I'm thinking of characters in Laurie Moore's short stories or the protagonist in Colm Tobin's Brooklyn, who moves from Ireland to oh, America. Yeah. But there are so many more examples. And yeah, I was thinking we, we're talking a lot about artists and there's a lot of art about forging a life of one's own in the quest to make art. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that because I was like, is it because it's artists doing the writing and the arting? Or do we put higher value on making cultural space for creativity rather than other pursuits? I, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? But yeah. for that reason, I like the way this idea manifests in The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante, in which Giovanna, who's a teenager, is is figuring out how to live a life of her own away from that of her parents. You know, it kind of has nothing to do with art. It has everything to do with just forging her own personality, right. especially when she starts to see the hypocrisy of the adults around her in her life. And in terms of nonfiction, to add to your point, I think nonfiction can give us 
a structure for rethinking how we conceive of things like freedom and the impediments that society might present when it comes to creating a life of one's own. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning a room of one's own, which makes a powerful statement about the spatial and economic necessities for true creativity for women. And of course, a life of one's own definitely is is literally playing off that idea by Virginia Woolf. But like the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois about the double consciousness of Black people, that's a way of thinking of how does somebody facing a certain amount of discrimination in society start to forge a life of their own? Or the book Easy Beauty by Chloe Cooper Jones about disability and the limits of our definition of beauty. I mean, nonfiction can open up new ideas about what a life of one's own would truly mean for someone who is not regarded as the norm. And that is so important. But anyway, are there any writers or artists who have forged a life of their own that come to mind? There are so many. And I think in a way, every woman artist or writer does or is required to, because still to claim the status and space of artist means pushing back against a lot of accepted gendered expectations, right? About women as available nurturers instead of art monsters, to borrow Jenny Offal's phrase. Also, Lauren Elkin's book of the same name, Art Monsters, is an amazing exploration into some of this stuff. Annie Arnaud was the first writer who came to mind because her writing is crucial to forging this life of her own. Like These two projects are completely intertwined, right? And by turning her own life into art, that is what has given her a life of her own. So it feels very relevant because her art is at the center of this living for herself. And then I also thought Deborah Levy's Living Autobiography deals with this, all three of the books, but especially Cost of Living and Real Estate, which both very explicitly explore the question of how to be a woman artist. I also thought of Toni Morrison, who forged a life as an artist, as well as being a single parent and a black woman in a racist country and racist society. So in spite of every single prejudice stacked against her and also all of the responsibilities she had to shoulder alone. She still made her own life. She still pursued her art. And actually she did it in a way that couldn't rely on having the closed door or the room of her own, which is so often the case that these ideas resonate in one way for white women, but for women with much less structural privilege, they're, they're simply not available, right? I was also thinking about the painter Alice Neal, who I've been reading a lot about lately, so she's at the front of my mind, but her life was a struggle in a lot of ways, but she never, ever wavered from her calling as an artist. She painted every day, and the strength of that conviction really formed the backbone of the life she made for herself with all of its ups and its downs and its successes and its terribly painful losses. It's interesting because yes, all of those people who came to mind are artists, right? So like to your point from before, yes, I do wonder if we see lives shaped by responsibility to others as in some way not being a life of a person's own, and maybe that's actually doing a disservice to those choices in life to make family with people, whether you procreate biologically or not, or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I wonder about this a lot. Yeah, I think it's something we need to think about, actually. <laughs> also, that I think this is, even if we're talking about women artists, it is fed by this myth of the artist as the lone genius. Yeah. Like somebody does their art by themselves. And of course, we know that's not true. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that those are all really great examples. And hearing you talk about that, I'm thinking about Rachel Cusk's essay about the painters Celia Paul and Cecily Brown oh, in the New yeah. York Times Magazine, which was titled, Can a Woman Who Is an Artist Ever Just Be an Artist? Um, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's a stunning piece of writing in itself, which kind of springs from Paul's autobiography, which in part tells the story of her life as one of Lucian Freud's many 
romantic partners and how that really restricted her life as an artist in many ways. And Cecily Brown, on the other hand, she moves to the U.S. at a young age, isn't really associated with a male painter, and she's set up as a kind of foil to Paul. But both struggle to make careers for themselves and eventually do, but with a lot of sacrifice and a lot of struggle. And as Cuss points out, as opposed to the male artist, she says, but if any woman creator, an explanation is required of whether or how she dispensed with her femininity and its limitations, with her female biological destiny, of where, so to speak, she buried the body. Ooh. And I love that. And I do think that's still something that women artists are dealing with in our society. And women in general, any woman who has aspirations beyond being a caregiver still has to show how she dispensed with her femininity, mm -hmm. put it in Cusk's words. I was also thinking about James Baldwin, yeah. who spent much of his later life in France, having left America in part because of the racism he encountered there. Though, of course, he didn't fully escape racism <laughs> in France, it's right. important to say. But he did say that being in France gave him a lucidity of distance, which I think can be a component of forging a life of one's own. Sometimes it's leaving the place where you're from to fully have perspective on it and on your life. Yeah, I think that's so true. And to feel a separation from your roots so that you can really speak for yourself. Definitely. So what is your recommendation on our theme, which is a life of one's own? It's continuing the artist theme, actually. It's the novel The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner, which is about Reno, a young artist in 1975, New York City, young woman, and she's trying to make it on her own. And she meets this older male artist who changes her life, but then begins to hold her back. She's a biker. She's interested in land art and motorbikes. And land art is very literally about claiming physical space. So kind of macho part of the art world that she's infiltrating. And this desire and this impetus for women artists to claim space is one of the novel's main themes. But it's also about the power of ideology in identity formation. So Rena gets swept up in the movement of 1977 in Italy, which is a radical left-wing political movement. So she's looking at all these different elements that go into the creation of an identity. And it's just, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant story. Such a good book. Yeah. I feel like I should read it again, actually. I want to read it again. Yeah. Every time I talk about it, I want to read it again. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Mine is a book I'm reading right now, which is Anne Enright's The Wren, The Wren. Mm. And this is a book about three generations, basically. There's a famous Irish poet who left his family, including his daughter, Carmel, and then Carmel's daughter, Nell. And all three are really trying to make a life of their own while also avoiding the mistakes that their parents made. And I think one of the things that this novel suggests is that family and family history isn't so easy to escape. And also that making a life for art can sometimes mean you are leaving other people behind, which is the case with this poet. Again, I guess I keep returning to this. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with the selfishness of a life of one's own, but I think it's that's always the flip side of this conversation. And I think Enright is answering that in really interesting ways in this novel. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. 
Okay, we are back here with Shalu Guo to give our monthly book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would be delighted to start with mine. This is actually a book that you recommended, Carrie, ages mm-hmm. ago. Love it. Far from the Tree: Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity by Andrew Solomon. I've just finished listening to the audiobook. It is a big work of nonfiction, so it's a great one to dip in and out of. And its main proposition is that diversity is actually what unites us, not what divides us, and that a world without variation would be no good at all for lots of reasons. So he's looking at parents and children whose children are radically different from their parents. And he has this wonderful line in it where he's, most people I know make it a point of pride that they are very different from their own parents but then they're upset when their children are not exactly like yes. them. <laughs> it's like this wonderful, very astute observation. And he has this very interesting way of thinking about identity, which I think is really illuminating generally, where he describes the difference as being between our vertical identities, which is anything that we share with our parents. So if we're the same race as our parents, if we are straight or gay like our parents, if we share a nationality with our parents, and then what he calls our horizontal identities, which are those that differ from our families of origin, So if your parents are straight, but you are gay, or if your parents are immigrants and you were born into a different language and culture from them, or if you are deaf and your parents are hearing. So when you have a horizontal identity, he explores how important it is to find a sense of belonging with others who share it and how this interruption in the vertical identity can be very disturbing and painful and alienating. Finding a sort of balanced way of understanding your identity often involves both a vertical identity and a horizontal identity being in community. And he divides it into different chapters. So it's based on an enormous amount of research. I don't know how many years he took to write it, but a long time. He spoke to over 300 families. So it's full of interviews as well, which is really moving. You hear from people living in all sorts of different situations. And the chapters are divided up into each form of difference. So he speaks to the parents of deaf children. He speaks to families where the children are prodigies, children with Down syndrome, children with schizophrenia, children who commit terrible acts of violence. And he's not just talking to the parents of young children. It's also parents of adult children. And it just, the whole thing comes together like a concert of extraordinarily moving and compassionate conversations and explorations of all that love can stretch to hold. And I think really at its heart, it's truly a manifesto, a very well-informed manifesto for the transformative power of unconditional love and embracing uncertainty in love, both for the person who is loved unconditionally and the person who loves unconditionally. The only thing, the only criticism I really have is that it uses some quite outdated language now when talking about disability. But if you can allow it that because of when it was published, 2012, a world away from now, actually, in these conversations, it's a really phenomenal work. Oh, I'm so glad you read it and loved it. And I'd be really interested to go back to it now, actually, because I read it around the time it was published. So it'd be interesting to see what's changed about my perception of it and about the language and about the ideas. Too. Yeah, the ideas I think are truly evergreen and it's a really, it's a beautiful resource. I think it's a book I'll go back to many times in life. Shalu, could we have your recommendation, please? The recent books I read, one is Art Monsters by Lauren Arkin. Actually, I also know the author. This is an excellent book about female artists throughout in the last century till now. I think it's really powerful historical kind of record of women artists in the modern time. So that's Art Monsters by Lauren Akin. Another book I'm actually reading today and in the last few days is also by a woman historian and art critic. It's called Humanly 
Possible by Sarah Bickwell, because I'm still in the middle of reading it, but I found very interesting because I know her other book about existentialism. So I think a book like that is really, you know, not vertical way of historical way of introduce, you know, one after another ABCD who did a word in the history of philosophical thinking. And I think she she does it in a very just organic, flowy way of introducing the thinkers, but horizontally and vertically at the same time on the same page. Um, so it's really nice. Fantastic. I've got Art Monsters and actually Lauren's a friend of mine. It's so great. My recommendation this month is Trust by Hernan Diaz. Oh, I really want to read this book. Yeah. And it, I think it was actually recommended by Gabrielle Zevin. Is that right? Yes, that sounds right. Yeah. So double recommendation for this one. This is a very clever novel about money, about capital, and about who controls the story. And I listened to it which I do with a lot of things these days. I went in knowing almost nothing about the story and where it would go. And I couldn't have predicted where it would go. And I recommend that anybody who wants to read it, don't read anything about this novel in advance. Just let the story happen to you. Needless to say, it does take some turns. But the focus is on an American financier who amasses a huge fortune during the Gilded Age in America, when America really becomes one of the financial centers of the world, or maybe even the financial center of the world. And it's also about his wife, a very mysterious figure committed to philanthropy who dies relatively young, and also a young Italian-American woman who he hires to help tell his story after his wife dies. And it's a dazzling novel to read or to listen to. Hernan Diaz, he just has a very deaf command of language on many different registers and in many different voices. And I think that's what works about the way this story is told. And also that he's just found a, a way to write a riveting narrative about money and finance, which I don't think is an easy task. And money is, of course, a thing lurking behind so many stories, which we discussed on our podcast about money. And it's absolutely essential to the American story. And yet so often it's alluded to or represented in terms of what it can buy. And this is just a novel about money, which I think is so interesting and about how finance works. And that makes it sound so boring, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd really recommend reading it. Sounds, yeah, I can't wait. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Shalu Guo and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email lipfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with our last ever show. Oh my God. Which will be a bumper edition year in review in which we'll look back at the last year the books we've loved reading the books we want to read next year but also the books we've loved and the things we've loved talking about and the authors that we have loved talking to over the last 10 years it's going to be like a decade in review yeah and it will be five hours long it will be five hours long get your popcorn <laughs> <laughs> until then I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction it sure is